Let's continue worship with a reading from selections of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And even if Christ has not been, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. For when the perishable part puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Welcome to church, team. I'm so stoked that you're here. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke 24. Uh, Let me just welcome you if you're a guest. Glad you're here. Um, Easter is one of those holidays that you get pulled into. Um, You're probably here because a friend or family member invited you. And while most uh, of us in this room are happy to eat a chocolate bunny, it might be a stretch to say most of us in this room are 100% on board and getting excited about a first century Palestinian Jew who claimed he was God and have no issues with the claim that he rose from the dead. I think that would be a stretch for us to say that, that all of us are just all in on this, okay? 
And what might be striking you today is, why are all these people singing so loud <laughs> about a dude who said some stuff and died, and then a bunch of guys said, well, he rose from the dead like 2,000 some odd years ago. Well, over the past few months, uh, we've been fasting and praying, and we've been digging into some more difficult truths in the Bible here at this church, truths that are certainly out of step with the, the cultural atmosphere in which we live. And we've been asking God to open our eyes to all the things in our life that are sinful, that are sinful. <laughs> Super fun, right? Even open the, our eyes to the things in our life that are not sinful, but are nonetheless stopping us from growing and maturing as, as people. And during the past month, we have been, I have been every, almost every week, man, coming after us and saying, take off the religious mask in church of all places. That's what we've been trying to do. And the invitation has been, dude, come out of the dark. Like, be honest about your weaknesses. Acknowledge your contribution to the mess. Just own it. Like, quit acting like thing, things are fine when they're not, right? And it's just been on repeat. Be honest, be honest, be honest. Religious people can really struggle with that. I thought maybe someone would say amen there. Okay, good. I was, I was like, some guest is going to be like, yeah, you know. No, it's true. It's true. But it seems in Scripture that the only prerequisite for being a Christian, uh, for being a saint, is knowing that you're a sinner. And Christians especially can tend to forget that. See, if you don't think you need forgiveness, then Easter, or really Jesus as a whole, loses all relevance, doesn't it? So we've been sitting with some hard biblical truths about the realities of sin. And now, uh, now church, now speaking to my, my crew here, uh, the invitation that I'm laying before you today is for you to take all the struggles and imperfections and sins that praying and fasting has stirred up in you. You ever fast? Stirs up all the stuff, man. All these little creatures pop out, closets you didn't even know existed, right? And I want to call you now to take all of the honesty and all the struggles and all the sins of this past month, and I want you to allow that to collide and be confronted with the authority and the power and the claims of Jesus. I want to call you, I want to invite you right now, right, from acknowledging your sins, yes, to now acknowledging the claims of Jesus, of what he said he did with those sins. We've been saying, dude, look at sin in the face, man. Like, call a duck a duck. Quit brushing it under the rug and own it. And now I'm saying to you, church, look at Jesus in the face. Can you be as honest with the things he claimed that he did as you are with your sins? Did you hear me? Can you be as honest with the claims of Jesus and the things he said he did with you as much as you are with the brokenness of the world and your own sins? Like sinful, broken, check. I ain't going to deny that, y'all. I'm messed up, right? Look good up here, right? But you know, you're like, well, not really. But you know what the Bible says about you? If you have believed in Christ, you know what the Bible says about you? If you've believed, man, broken, yeah, but fully and completely and comprehensively forgiven, too. By the blood, that's the claim. It's audacious. Dude, the claim of the Bible is if you believe in what Jesus has done, you got on your head stamped, redeemed, redeemed. The claim is that you have been taken out from underneath the rule of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. Listen, acknowledging both of these things, your sin and the claims of Christ, uh, will take no small amount of effort, okay? 
Acknowledging both of these things is no small thing. And, if, and we don't leave, church, we don't leave honesty behind like many accuse Christians of doing. Do they not? No. We just throw our honesty towards God and we cry out, save me. Because Christian or not, you are crying out, save me to something. Maybe your TV, maybe your phone, maybe your marriage, maybe your paycheck, but you're looking for redemption, brother. Right? Christian or not, whether you've been with us over the last months or not, if you can't be honest about your brokenness, then Easter has no relevance for you. Okay, Jesus died, maybe. Maybe he rose from the dead, not sure about that one. But forgiveness? Forgiveness of what? You gotta look sin in the face, guys. You gotta call it what it is, right? In contrast, by the way, with many other religions and worldviews, Christianity actually deals with the brokenness in the cosmos, right? But equally as true, if you won't look at what God says he has done by the death and resurrection of Jesus, then Easter is equally as impotent to you just from the other direction. So let me just press a little on this dynamic. You guys get what I'm talking about? Some of you in here, your struggle is going to be acknowledging your sins. That's gonna be the hard part for you because you're not the kind of person who says, I'm sorry. Good luck with that in your relationships. But my guess is the real struggle that most of us have is not really acknowledging our sins. That's pretty clear. You know you're pretty messed up if you're honest. What's difficult for you is actually believing that God has definitively dealt with those sins by the death and resurrection of his son. Seeing sin probably doesn't, maybe doesn't feel difficult for you, right? It doesn't for, for me. No, what's difficult for me is seeing God's, seeing God's love and forgiveness. That's the tall order in my book. That's what I struggle more with just as a person. For some of you, the mountain of your mistakes and failings and character flaws will always loom larger and be more real to you than the grace and new life offered to you in the resurrection. Do you understand what I'm saying? For some of us, our insufficiencies stand like dark, looming mountains over the landscape of our life, and they cast a shadow on any claim that God would or could love you. And you honestly feel like maybe there's no way around that, right? This is why the Bible is so confrontational to me, okay? If you've ever read the Bible. Because it condemns me in my sin more than I'd like. And at the same time, claims it forgives and redeems me and puts me at a place that I can never get on my own. I've never found a book, y'all, that is more honest with the human condition at the same time hopeful about the kind of life humans can experience here and now. So... All of us are somewhere on this balance between kind of what you could say is honesty on the one side and faith on the other, which I think is a bit of a false dichotomy, but we experience it nonetheless. We tend to think either I can be an honest person, I can see reality for what it is, I can actually deal with the gruesome facts, right, about humanity and history and my own sins. I can look at the real, I'm an honest person, right? Or we can be a person of faith who ignores the harsh truths about the world and myself, and we put on rose-colored glasses and sprinkle Jesus dust on all of our problems, right? And clap if you believe, right? And for many of us, that's the option, right? And so, you know, like, dude, like, I, I'm going to choose honest. Like, I'm, gonna choose, I'm just going to be real, right? And then all of a sudden, this muscle, this faith muscle begins to wane. You know what I'm talking about. This is how, and then if you're in this camp, you're going to tend to see people with faith as having lost touch with reality, Right? You're going to tend to see people who have any more faith than you, really. Not a lot of faith, just a little bit more than you, right? You're going to tend to think, portray them as living in an illusion. And I'm the realist over here, right? I mean, I'm miserable, right? But I'm a realist, right? As if, listen to me, 
as if despair and cynicism is just the price to pay for being honest. Huh? Like, you're going to be miserable, but you're not going to fake it, right? And if that's you, right, Jesus is just always on par with Tinkerbell. It's just a bunch of people playing make-believe, and it's too good to be true. And you maintain that by dismissing anyone who has any account of faith, no more faith than you, as a religious fanatic, right? But you see, true Christianity, the Bible is going to say Christianity is only for those who are willing to face all the facts. You see? All the facts. Not just the facts about you, but the facts about God, too. In my opinion, Christians are the only true realists. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Having pushed your, you towards honesty, right, and the hard facts about yourself, now I want to push you towards honesty and the hard facts about God. How about like this one, like he loves you deeply? That, to me, is a hard fact. And I struggle with that more than I'd like to admit. I can see my sins, bro. I'm honest, right? But, dude, believing that God loves me deeply, profoundly, in spite of that, I struggle. Can I say that from the pulpit? Can I say that? It's difficult for me to believe that, y'all, right? Having said, open your eyes to your sin. Now I say to you, open your eyes to the claims of the resurrected Christ. Let him meet you, not on the mountaintop of achievement, but in the valley of honesty. Or in question form, like I've been saying it, can you be as intellectually honest about the God of the Bible as you are with your own sins and the brokenness of the world. So, if you're a Christian in here, I want to tell you something that might be a little uncomfortable for you. Your, the whole of your faith rests on one claim. If it really didn't happen in history, then your faith totally crumbles, and it's the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, then nothing else he said really matters, and your faith is null and void. That's exactly what we read, and we are wasting our time. Which, from the very beginning, dude, was highly contested, y'all. The resurrection, highly contested. Jewish leaders immediately claimed that did not happen, right? This is ridiculous. His disciples stole his body in the night, right? They knocked out the guards. They stole the body, right? However, if you aren't a Christian in here, if, if he did rise from the dead, then things get a little uncomfortable for you. Because now you have to look again at everything he said. If he rose from the dead, then he was who he said he was. And he did exactly what he said he did. And it's true, despite the fact that it feels too good to be true. So let's just look for a few minutes at the claim of the resurrection. And then very quickly, an, one implication that his followers and Jesus himself claimed that the resurrection fulfilled or, or does. Okay? We chatting? Good? Everyone good? Happy Easter. He is risen. We didn't do that yet. That's a Christianese thing. So, All right. Let's read it. It's Luke 24. Here we go. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. He's going to tell us who they is in a second. That's really, really important. Taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb already. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. 
And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Remember, there were twelve, but one of them didn't. Now, now, this is really important. Now, oh, by the way, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and James's mom and the other ladies who told these things to the apostles. And these words to them seemed an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Now, we're always looking for faith in the Bible, but you ever look for doubt? Because you just saw it right there. None of Jesus' closest friends believed that this had happened. But Peter, I mean, he rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he went home marveling, bewildered, in wonder. In other words, it created more questions than answers for him at what had happened. Let me pray. We'll do this. Jesus, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and that you'd call the dead to life. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to notice is how Luke pauses halfway through to point something out to you. Oh, it was the ladies who told us these things. Every gospel account points this out, right? It was the women who discovered the empty tomb first. And we think, fine, well, whatever. But you have to remember, in first century Palestine, a woman could not even testify in court, y'all. A woman's claim or voice was basically worthless in important matters. I don't know if any guys were going to say amen at that point. <laughs> but every, oh, already starting. But every gospel account... <laughs> admits, every, every gospel account admits two things, really, and the really unflattering things. Number one, that it was women that first claimed Jesus rose from the dead. And then number two, every gospel account admits some sort of doubt, if not total doubt, on the part of the disciples. Luke says none of them believed. They called them liars to their face, right? Matthew tells us even after uh, Jesus appeared, risen to the disciples, some doubted. This is, look, can we just, are we here? Are we chatting? Can I read it for you real quick? Now, the 11 disciples went to the Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped. Uh, uh, but some doubted. That's remarkable. It sounds like us. It sounds like modern people. They're staring the evidence in the face, and they're saying, nah, it's got to be a ghost. We're just wishful thinking, y'all. Right, we're hallucinating. Some doubted. Now, John tells us about poor Thomas. He's, I feel poor, sorry for poor Thomas. He's out getting Starbucks when Jesus comes back, right? So Thomas comes back with his non-fat soy lattes, and everyone's freaking out. And Thomas is like, y'all, y'all crazy. Y'all crazy. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's, in fact, Thomas says, I will never believe unless I see it myself. And do Christians love to hate on Thomas, right? Eternally labeled doubting Thomas. Listen, man, he's just asking for proof, man. You know the interesting thing? Jesus gives it to him. How about that? I thought faith was just kind of like a blind jump thing. You just have to kind of, mm, interesting, right? I mean, Jesus also said, yeah, but blessed are those who, who believe and don't see like you guys. Now, why point all this out? Well, let's think about it. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead was contested from the very beginning. The gospel accounts themselves acknowledge this. Luke doesn't mention it, but Matthew goes into great detail that the religious leaders say, hey, listen, this imposter Jesus, he said he was going to rise from the dead, so you need to put some guards around the tomb. And it says that they sent guards and sealed the tomb and set guards over the tomb. Now, it's interesting. When the guys in dazzling apparel show up, the guards pass out in fear, right? 
So Matthew tells us. And he tells us that the guards go to the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders pay the guards off to say, guys, just say that his disciples came, they knocked you out, a bunch of fishermen knocked you guys out, right, and then took the body of Jesus. So from day one, y'all, there has been alternative narratives about what really happened during the resurrection and on this account. And today, oh man, there's tons of alternative narratives, mostly that align with our modern scientific materialistic understanding of the universe. So what you're going to find Time Magazine and all these documentaries saying is, well, Jesus didn't really die. He was like mostly dead, like Prince's Bride, like Prince's Bride. You've seen Prince's Bride. And Mad Max took the thing of chocolate, shoved it down his throat. And, and then Jesus, like, you know, he was like beaten and like all, you know, the cat of nine tails and the hands and the nails. Yeah, but he pushed the stone aside, right? He pushed it out of the way. And he crawled the 80 miles to Galilee over rocky terrain. And then his disciples nursed him back to help. But you see, what they're not willing to say is that nothing happened. You'd be hard-pressed hard to find a reputable historian who would dare to say that nothing happened. Dude, something happened. Now, that doesn't start plenty kind of un- people that maybe didn't pay attention to history class to then uh, assert this false narrative, which is nothing happened. <laughs> plenty of people will maintain that, right? Plenty of people will say, oh, Christianity was made up by a bunch of white dudes trying to control power, despite the fact that it's like none of these dudes are white. Okay. <laughs> Jesus nor his disciples. Okay. No, so this is, dude, have you heard this? No one's heard this? No one's heard this claim that it's all made up? Is it just, okay, okay, I got one nod, okay. Am I on or I'm off, right? I think I'm on. No, people say this, y'all. People say this is all made up. And, and it's, on, it's on par with the, with the tooth fairy, and Jesus is a mythical creature just like a unicorn or a centaur, and reasonable people don't believe in myths. That's the thing, right? I'm just looking for a little, just a, okay, all right, thank you, thank you, okay. But the past 2,000 years of human history points exactly in the opposite direction. Like I said, you'd be hard-pressed to find any historian who would say that, not because of the Bible, but because of the past 2,000 years of history. Y'all, something happened. Not only did it spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire, but today Christianity is the most ethnically diverse religion in the world. Christianity leaves every other religion in the dust when it comes to the diversity and the expanse of its followers. Riddle me that. Something happened to turn this tiny, small, persecuted Jewish religious sect into the largest religion on the face of the earth now. That Jesus was a real historical person has never really been in question. The question has always been, is he who he says he was? That's always been the question. So let's just think about this one accusation real quick, and I'm going to combine it with the narrative, and then we'll look at one implication. This one accusation that Christianity's made up and the resurrection's made up, and so let's just think about it real quick. If you were going to start a religion today, uh, you're going to make up something crazy to assert authority and dominion over people like people say Christianity's about, right? How would you go about doing this? Well, if I want people to believe something, I need someone to endorse my message. Who am I going to get to endorse? I'm going to come up with a thing. I'm going to find people who will believe me, and then we're going to spread the news, all right? Let's just say a guy rose from the dead, right? Okay. Now, who are you going to find for the endorsement? Maybe a politician, right? I'm so-and-so, and I endorse this message, right? Or maybe you'll try to find a very trustworthy source, right? Someone in power, someone who people believe, someone who someone would listen to, right? And you'd really want to put forth a solid, consistent front, 
right? If we're going to maintain a lie, we all got to be sure what the lie is. Let's all maintain it. Let's all put forth a consistent front. Every marketer knows you got to stay on brand, okay? So, you know, you know what's totally crazy? If you actually read the Bible, it's the exact opposite. It is the voiceless and the powerless who first claim he rose again. Women, right? And none of his closest friends believed, right? Why would you include this? Biblical writers, why did you include this if you're trying to get people on board, right? If you're just making it up, why would you betray yourself as completely unbelieving and let the cat out of the bag that it was the woman who first claimed it? Who saw him alive? Our ladies did, which, of course, we didn't believe them because they're ladies, right? <laughs> no one thinks that's funny. <laughs> why would they include this, y'all? The most logical conclusion is the only reason someone would write this down is if it actually happened. It is totally out of step with their cultural context and would have cast a massive shadow on the, of suspicion over the entire movement. People would have said, oh yeah, that small religious sect they call the way, isn't that the crazies that claim a bunch of ladies said a guy rose from the dead? <laughs> it would have been laughable. And for many of us today, it is still laughable, though, for different reasons. Today, it's the supernatural element that we struggle with. See, we are obedient, post-enlightenment, modern folk who know that science has explained away all that supernatural stuff, right? Which has led many secular and Christian people to think that Christianity must be a kind of blind leap of faith in who really knows. Or as I recently saw, Mark Twain is reputed as of saying, faith is believing things you know ain't true. But what I'm trying to point out to you today is there's a whole bunch of real historical evidence, not only that Jesus was a real person, but in fact that he did rise from the dead. In fact, Kathy Keller points out that post-resurrection, Jesus doesn't seem to abide by the normal laws of physics if you've read the story. He appears in rooms that were locked, disappears in a flash, he floats up in the sky. And her point is, is this. It's clear from the text that Jesus did not need the stone rolled away to exit the tomb. She says, no, the stone was rolled away, not that he could get out, but that we could get in. Amen. What does she mean? She means Jesus didn't send word through a messenger and say, hey, just believe him that he rose from the dead. No, he opened the tomb so that they could verify it with their own eyes. Look at how Jesus dealt with Thomas. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Okay, all right, it's weird. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, peace be with you. Yeah, probably because they were freaking out, right? Then he said to Thomas, hey, man, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Don't, don't disbelieve. But, but believe, he invited Thomas to verify. Apparently, the kind of faith Jesus is wanting is not a blind faith, but one founded on a real historical event. It's not the kind of faith in believing something exists. When we say believing in Jesus, we're not saying we believe he exists like we believe tooth fairies exist or something like that. That's not saving faith. What we say when we say believe in Jesus is believing what he said about himself. That is faith. It's trust. It's not blind. It's rooted in historical events and based on the trustworthiness of God himself. Some of us have this idea that your faith is a delicate flower and will crumble if you ask too many questions or do too much readings. I just want to say to you, that's not the case. That's not the case. Jesus and the movement he sparked is an undeniable historical reality. You may disagree with his claims, but you cannot deny that something incredibly significant happened that changed the course of human history literally split it in half. And I want you to know, as a Christian, you should not be afraid of honest questions. Jesus can handle, handle your doubts and questions. At the same time, if you are not a Christian, I want to invite you to doubt your doubts. 
I want to invite you to question your questions and admit that this man, Jesus, really is maybe worth some effort in exploring. Because if he is who he says he is, there is no more crucial issue in your lifetime to resolve than the question of who he said he was. Now, no matter where you stand on the issue, I think you all have to admit that we are a product of our time, all right? And we all have a bias when it comes to supernatural claims. Now, let me just end with one particular claim of the New Testament, and we'll wrap up and get out of here, and we'll beat the Baptist to crack a barrel, okay? Let me... <laughs> Let me just end with one. That's an old pastor joke, and y'all laughed anyway. Um, let me just end with one particular claim of the New Testament and of the early Jesus movement and what they saw as one of the primary implications of the resurrection. It, and it was basically this, that in the, the Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquered and defeated and disarmed every power of spiritual darkness. This is a basic claim of the New Testament. And it's really an audacious claim that Jesus defeated what the New Testament calls the rulers and authorities by his life and resurrection, by his life, death, and resurrection. Let me just prove it to you real quick, okay? In John 14, Jesus calls this ruler and authority the ruler of the world who has no claim on him. Second Corinthians, he just is called the God of this world. Ephesians 2 calls this thing the prince of the power of the air. And he clarifies, oh, that's the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. So one of the primary claims is that when Jesus died and more specifically rose from the dead, he conquered all unseen powers of darkness and now has authority over every other ruler and authority. And we don't really talk about these things today, but you see one of the fundamental claims of the gospel is that humanity has been enslaved to the powers of darkness. The Bible calls it sin. And the picture we get is that we live in a world where darkness rules and very often wins, right? And it's not really a hard sell, Christian or not, right? Just a little history, a little bit of living, right? And you're going to figure out the world's a pretty dark place. So one of the first things Jesus tells his disciples post-resurrection is this. All authority has been given to me, on heaven and on earth. Ephesians 1 says, listen, when Christ rose from the dead, he was seated above all rule and authority, power and dominion, right? And if you're like, well, I don't know, it's a tall claim. Oh, okay, let me read one more, okay? Romans 8, 38, you remember this one? You guys, if you grew up in a church, you know this one. I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. These are pairs, death and life. Angels, rulers, right? Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height and depth. And anything, anything called creation can separate us from the love of God. Do you see what's happening here? The powers and the rulers of spiritual darkness are being compared to something, right? In 1 Peter 3.22, it says, Jesus went into heaven and sat at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here's where we'll end the plane today. One of my favorite things. Colossians 2 is this. And you... When you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This, this record of debt stood against He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Here it is. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, let's just chat. Where is the area in your life of your greatest shame? What is the thing you do or did or continually do that you are ashamed of that you can't seem to stop? 
Maybe it's telling small lies at work. Maybe it's some substance you can't shake. Maybe it's looking at things online. Maybe it's gossiping about others. Maybe it's rage and anger that no matter what you do, you can't get it under control. All of us have areas of our lives where you probably feel a little helpless, where things are out of control and you don't know quite what to do. Maybe even some areas where you feel oppressed, oppressed, right? Maybe depression or despair has become connected to some darkness in your past that you've tried to bury really, really deep, but it keeps on coming up, right? What's the thing you're continually putting forth a surprising amount of effort to distract from and push under the rug, right? Some insecurity, some, some thorn in the flesh, that's what Christians call it, right? Listen, I know this is hard for us to talk to and admit, but all of us have areas like this, whether we want to admit it or not. And what I want you to see on Easter Sunday is part of the claim of the resurrection of Christ is that he has taken away the weapons of spiritual darkness and oppression. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oppressors oppress because they have power and weapons over you, right? Someone doesn't have an AK-47, I'm probably not going to listen to what he says. Someone pointing a gun at me, oh, that's power. I'm, I'm a little intimidated now. And actually, now I feel very out of control, by the way. And oh, what do you want me to do? Yes, sir. The claim of Jesus is that he's taken away the fool's gun. Do you understand? He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's rendered them powerless over you. This is bizarre. Do you understand what they're saying? Can anyone just say, I don't get it, buddy? Like, I don't, I'm not there. I wish I was there. I, he took away their ability to assert authority and power over you and me. This is the claim of the resurrection, right? Not only that, but it says he put them to open shame. What does that mean? What does that mean, open shame? Wasn't it Jesus who was put to open shame? Yeah. It, it, was, it wasn't uncommon in that day for victorious military leaders having freed people from some foreign oppressor to basically parade those defeated oppressors in chains through the streets to make it abundantly clear, hey, everybody, these guys aren't in charge anymore. They have no more power. I'm in charge now. Military leaders did that in antiquity. You can find all sorts of sources that say that, right? All right, well, can you imagine all of your sin and shame and doubt, and insecurities, and all the motivating factors that cause self-destructive behavior in your life, maybe it's your lust, maybe it's your anger, or rage, or greed, or past sins, whatever it is, the things that have sabotaged your joy over and over. I want you to imagine that as a creature, having been completely and utterly defeated, now in chains, in a line, with their hands and feet chains, in chains, led behind the radiant one who is dead, but now alive, and has on his hips the keys of death and hell. And you see them going by, these creatures that oppressed you, that ruined you, that, did, that ruined this and ruined that, and you're just so ashamed of them. And every time you see them, you feel this thing inside, and you see them in chains. And even in chains, when they go by, they hiss and gurgle and spit at you, still trying to lay claim over you as if they aren't defeated, despite the fact that all their weapons have been taken away. And you begin to realize something has been done for me that I could never have done for myself. I was 
powerless under a darkness that has now been rendered powerless because the radiant one was put to open shame. The one with all authority and power was stripped naked and himself publicly shamed. And they thought they won in that moment. And they didn't know that when the father put punished sin in the body of the son by his death, that he would go through death and come out the other side with the keys of death on his hip. This is the claim of the New Testament. This is what the Bible says Jesus did for you. What would it look like if you believe this? Let's not play pretend here, folks. What would it look like if you actually put pressure on this claim? That the things that have plagued you in darkness and oppression have been disarmed. And my suspicion is that if you will begin to put just a teeny, eeny, 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 eeny ounce of faith in this claim, that joy and the power of the Holy Spirit will flood in over the threshold of your soul. And that you will begin to experience a kind of life here and now that you never thought you could experience. And that is through a very small door. It's called repentance and faith. To believe that Jesus was who he says he was and did what he said he did. And if you can put just an eensy bensy about, then, then here you are with us, man. You're, you're, with, you're a Christian. And that's about all we can honestly say is that despite the feeling that we are still under darkness and oppression, when we put that just little eensy-beensy bit of faith in Jesus, something happens. And I'm, I want to tell you today that something can happen in you too. That no matter how far gone you think you are, I don't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell, the power of Christ can assert authority over the darkness in your life. Let's stand and pray. Father, we hear uh, your invitation to step out in faith and what you said you have done, Father. Oh, I just have a sense that God has uh, taken you by the shoulders, looking you at the eyes and saying, I dare you to believe me. Help us believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you, God. God, we thank you for all the friends that have gathered with us today. We pray that their hearts have been encouraged in the name of Jesus. And maybe that many of us have been pricked today to go back and look and observe and, and try to figure out what was this man about? Why did he call such a ruckus in the world? God, would you uh, help us, Lord? We love you. In your name we pray these things. Amen. 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 Good job, guys. We'll see you next time. Have a great week.